Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 13. And while you're turning there, if we have any children that will be uh, participating in our children's ministry, uh, you can make your way to the uh, back room there. The leaders will be waiting for you. If you want to be a part of that this morning, we invite you to go uh, uh, to the the room back there with them. Uh, For everyone else, again, we'll be here in Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Again, verses 11 through 13. And as we do every week, I'm going to read our passage for us. And then we will pause and take a moment to pray together. So Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray together. Father, what a weighty passage for us to be looking at this morning. To be reminded that our lives are exposed before you and that we will give an account. And so, Father, I pray that the weight of your word would rest upon us, that you would grab our attention this morning, that we would fix our eyes on your word. And, Father, we're thankful that because of the finished work of Christ, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us to be at work in us this morning through the truth of your word. And so, Father, we are so thankful that we don't come here this morning in our own strength or in our own power. We come here as spirit-filled believers, relying on the power of your spirit to give us understanding, to convict us of sin, to help us to see the glories of Jesus Christ, to encourage us where we're walking well. Father, we pray that you would do all of those things among us this morning. And Father, I think all of us can confess that we, we need your strength, we need your power if we're gonna be able to obey the very thing you're calling us to do this morning, to, to strive to enter your rest so that none of us will fall away and fail to enter that glorious eternal rest. And so, Father, I pray for your help. I ask that you would guide my words this morning. Uh, Father, I, I, I do not want to lead anyone astray. I don't want to lead my own heart astray. And so I pray that you would allow me to speak only what is true of your word, only what is true of you. And we pray that Christ would be exalted among us for our good and for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen this come up a few times in Hebrews, but here it is again. Faithful pursuit of Christ will always mean hard work. 
And we have to be honest about this. We have to be honest about this as God's people. When we come to Christ, when we become Christians, if we're going to be committed followers of Christ, life doesn't magically get easier. There is no promise of things getting easy. Now, you may think that's a strange thing for Jesus. Life's going don't we want people coming to Jesus and we're going to go around telling them if you come to Jesus, life's going to be really hard. You're going to have to put in a lot of work. There's much that needs to be done. Aren't there precious promises of peace and comfort and joy and satisfaction, love, belonging, adoption, deliverance, rest, and on and on? Yes, a thousand times over. Yes and amen. God's word promises us all of those things, and I'll be the first one, Lord willing, to shout those promises from the rooftop. But we can have all of those things, peace, comfort, joy, and on and on, while at the very same time being called to labor, to work, and to toil for the sake of the gospel. In other words, we should never even hint at the fact or, or the assumption that these kind of promises mean by those promises a life of ease. That's not what is meant. That's not what is implied by those promises. Instead, they are promises intended to help us persevere in the midst of trials and hardships and labor and toil and even suffering as we follow Jesus. And the reason I want to make this clear is because the first sentence of our passage calls us to strive, to be diligent, to work hard. That's what it calls us to. And I want you to know that this is not a unique command in God's word. So let's just do a brief survey of a few different places where we are called to work hard for the sake of the gospel and for the pursuit of Christ. So we're going to do a lot of these, but there's still not going to be all of them that we could have done, all right? But here's a few of them in no particular order. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Did you hear that? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance. Run after Jesus. Endure to the end. Or just a few verses later in Hebrews 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. There's work to be done in our fight against sin. Or the words of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run... But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Run like you're running to win the race. Fight against sin. Discipline your body and keep it under control. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, this is a passage that is central to our church. This passage is what our mission statement is based on. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works within me. Right? Toil, hard work, struggling with all the energy that the Lord can provide for us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily, not hardly, right? Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 10. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Make every effort. Be diligent. Be about this. And then... 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And then just two more. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then finally, Philippians 2.16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is Paul calling on the Philippian church to hold fast, to work, to hold fast to the word of life so that he will not have wasted his life laboring for the sake of the gospel. And there are numerous other places we could have looked at. We could have looked at Ephesians and putting on the armor of God, right? Something we have to do, something we have to work at. Put on the armor of God so that we can hold up the shield of faith and extinguish the darts of the evil. We can take up the sword of the Spirit. Those are things we must do. Those are things we must be about. Or commands like pray without ceasing, right? There, There are things that we need to be about, that we need to be pursuing, that we need to be diligent about in the Christian life. You see, if we're, going to, if we're going to follow Christ faithfully, if we're going to obey the truth of his word as he has laid out before us, as we just looked at in numerous places, or even if we're just going to obey what is said to us here in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And I can confidently say, stand before you this morning and say, there is no room for laziness in your walk with Jesus. There's no room for indifference or for laziness in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. 
Because according to the passages we just looked at, following Jesus means running, laboring, toiling, enduring, working heartily, making every effort, holding fast, being diligent, and struggling. Right? That doesn't sound like a lazy life to me, right? That's hard work. Something we have to pursue. And that's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to this morning. He says to us there in verse 11, Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. The word strive means to, it's translated in other places in the New Testament, to, to be diligent, to make every effort. And you can hear the urgency of the call of the author of Hebrews here, that we must be diligent. We must strive to enter this rest that has been promised to us. And so in these three verses, verses 11, 12, and 13, the author lays out for us four, uh, four reasons why we should strive to enter this rest. So let me lay out those four reasons, and then we'll look at them one at a time. We should strive to enter God's rest because, number one, it's worth it. It's worth it. Number two, we should strive to enter God's rest because the church needs you. The church needs you. Number three, we should strive to enter God's rest because the word will reveal your heart. And finally, we should strive to enter God's rest because God sees all. So let's look at this first reason, this first truth, that we should strive to enter God's rest because it's worth it. Look there with me at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So all I want to do here for a moment is focus on the word therefore. We, we've talked about this many times as a church, and so I just, just want to say it again. When you see the word therefore, the author is making an argument. He's building on something that he has said before. And so he's saying, therefore, because of all that I've said previous to this, you need to be striving to enter this rest. So, so what is it that the author said before this? Well, as we saw last week in the first part of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews reminded us that there is a glorious rest that awaits you and I in eternity. He reminded us that when God rested on the seventh day, that wasn't the end of it. We weren't cut off from God's rest because he said, hey, look, God's people were promised a rest when they were rescued out of Egypt. And so there must still be a rest we can enter into. But because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter that eternal rest. But the fact that he said they couldn't means it's still available to be entered into. And then he said, well, maybe perhaps someone could argue when Joshua, after 40 years of wandering, when, when, when Joshua took them across the Jordan and they finally entered the promised land, maybe right there, maybe that was the rest that was promised. And so we can't go in anymore. But he says, no, no, David uh, centuries after that in Psalm 95 is still talking about the fact that we can enter God's rest. And he says to us, the, the promise still remains. It's still available for you. You can still get in. And then he says this glorious truth in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He says to us, there is an eternal rest in the presence of Jesus Christ. 
filled with contentment and joy and satisfaction and pleasure in Christ for all eternity. And even now, when we come to Christ, even right now, Jesus says to us, if we come to him, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Even right now, if we come to Christ, we can put our works to rest of thinking we have to earn God's favor. It doesn't mean we have no work left to do. It just means that our works don't earn God's favor. We work empowered by the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, not to earn the gospel or to earn the Spirit. And that's the rest that's being spoken of, that, that we at that point can rest from our works as God did from his. And therefore, and chapter 4, the author says to us, therefore, because of these glorious realities, do not put this off. Today, right now, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did, as those who are wandering in Israel. Don't make the same mistake they did, which is what the author also says here in verse 11, so that you will not fall by the same sort of disobedience well, what disobedience did they fall by? By the disobedience of unbelief and indifference to the glorious promises that God had made to them. Don't fall victim to the same thing. In other words, the author is saying to us, how could anyone, how could anyone listen to these promises of God and shrug their shoulders with indifference? Right? How can you do that? Look, there, there's so much more that the book of Hebrews has to say, obviously, because there's many more chapters that we have to work our way through. But just think of all that is built up to this moment. Think of all that is loaded into the word, therefore strive to enter that rest, right? Just think of all we've learned about Jesus Christ from chapter one, right? Right here at the beginning of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one, verse one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's more glorious than the angels, as terrifying and majestic as they are. Jesus is more glorious than they are because he created them and he holds them together by the word of his power. He's more glorious than Moses, who was faithful among God's people, but he's a, he's a more glorious prophet and priest. He's more glorious because he came, chapter 2, verse 14, and shared in our flesh and blood so that he could lay down his life in our place so that we could enter into this rest. God has done all of this for us through the glorious uh, incarnation of Jesus Christ, through his perfect righteous life, through his death on the cross, through the power of his resurrection. And because of all of that, a promise still remains that we can enter his rest. Therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, that's, that's the argument the author is making here in the first half of verse 1. It's worth it. 
Because this eternal rest means being in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity, full of joy and satisfaction in him. That's what it means. And so it's worth being diligent to work toward. But this isn't just about you individually. And so here's the second reason we must strive to enter that rest. We, we should strive to enter God's rest because the church needs you. Look at the second half of verse 11. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This makes clear that the author is, is motivating us to strive to enter this rest by telling us that our striving impacts other people. Right? Strive to enter that rest so that no one, you can supply the word at the same sort of disobedience, so that no one among you may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And same sort of disobedience, as I mentioned earlier, is referring to the disobedience of unbelief that Israel fell prey to when they heard God speak his promises. Now, this is probably the third or fourth week in a row where Hebrews has, has hammered us with this about our corporate responsibility for one another. And you may get tired of hearing us talk about it, but as long as God's word is talking about it, we're going to keep talking about it because he wants us to hear it this morning. We are responsible for one another. We have an obligation to each other in this church so that no one may fall. Your striving, your diligence, your efforts in pursuing the rest that God offers to us has a pivotal role in keeping others from falling away. That's what verse 11 says. Let us together, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one among us may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Look, that's why any church will fail if it ultimately thinks of itself or offers itself in some kind of consumerist way. See, those who want to be a part of church with a consumer mentality only think about how it benefits them. And this is what I mean by consumer mentality, right? When you, when you go to a store, you think, what can this store do for me? What does it have for me, right? What does this store have for me? What does this organization have for me? What does this club have for me? What will this uh, show do for me, right? That's, that's a consumer's mentality. What, what's in it for me? And the unfortunate reality is that far too many people who claim to be following Jesus only think about the church in those terms. No question about it. And you should be very concerned about what a church is going to do for your walk with Christ when you evaluate it, when you consider whether you should be a part of it. Don't hear me saying otherwise. But if it stops there, if every person in attendance is only worried about what it does for them and not what they can do for others, then we cannot live in obedience to God's word. Because according to verse 11, our striving impacts every other person in this room and those who are not able to be here this morning who are a part of our body. We must strive, we must work hard, we must be diligent for the sake of each other. We have to be willing to give of ourselves, to, to pour ourselves out for those with whom we have covenanted together with in this local 
church. And so that looks like discipleship, right? It looks like individuals in this church and, and reading God's word together or going through a helpful book together. It looks like being committed to life groups. And we're going to talk about that in our meeting afterward that we're going to be launching in the fall. It looks like being a part of Bible studies that this church will offer. It looks like checking in on each other. It looks like what we saw earlier in chapter 3, exhorting one another every day. Right? Being mindful of how your brothers and sisters in Christ are, are doing. But ultimately, what this passage is saying is that how hard you run after Jesus will impact how hard other people run after Jesus. And so strive. Strive to enter this glorious rest, not just for yourself, but for the sake of everyone sitting around you here this morning. That's what verse 11 is calling us to. Now, this leads us to another question as we think about these reasons for stress. Why, why do we have to work so hard at this? Well, let's look at this third reason together. We must strive to enter God's rest because the word of God will reveal your heart. The word of God reveals our hearts. Look there at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and a spirit of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, if, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this verse a lot. This is a fairly well-known passage of scripture in the church. And that's a good thing. It's, it's really good that it's well known. But, but I think far too often it's known outside of its context here in this passage about the argument that this verse is actually making. You see, that, that first word at the beginning of verse 12 is really important. He's saying, let us strive into that rest so that, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for or because, because the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, if we ask the question, why should we strive to enter that rest? The answer the author is giving us is because the word of God is living and active. Now, at some level, that seems strange because probably if you or I were writing this passage, we would say something like, let us strive to enter that rest. And in order to do that, we need to look to the truth of God's word, right? It's, it's a call to action. But this isn't a call to action. It's, it's laying a foundation under the argument. It's saying, strive to enter that rest because here's the truth about God's word. This is what's going to happen to you when you interact with God's word. So here's the reason why you need to strive to enter God's rest. In other words, the point of this passage is that we must strive to enter that rest because the word of God resides in our souls. And because of that, we have to strive and work at entering God's rest. I don't mean we earn it. Christ has, has earned the way. But we must run after him. And what verse 12 says to us is that we can't fool God. Because his word pulls back the facade on our hearts. We can't fool him. The word of God is living and active. 
It's not a neutral object of information about history. It is living. It is at work. You see, when you read other books, everybody has different taste in books, right? uh, My wife and my my daughters love, you know, Jane Eyre and these British novels. And I'm sure a lot of you, I'm not making light of that. Those are great books, I'm sure. I've just never read them, okay? So they love those books. They quote those books, right? They, They engage with those books. They're meaningful to them. I like reading very different kinds of books, socioeconomic type books, things like that interest me, history books, right? Those kind of things interest me. And I quote those and stop them and tell them what I'm reading, right? Different books have different impact on different people because we have different preferences. And so one person may find this particular book inspiring and someone else may find this particular book inspiring. But, but the center of the inspiration is in you, right? It's in your interaction, your preferences, your desires when you interact with that book. But that's not true of the Bible. The Bible itself, as an object that sits before us, God's word that speaks to us through the scriptures is living and active, regardless of how you feel about it. Right? It's an objective truth. That the word of God is living and active. It, it actively is at work on us. Right now, as we've been reading it, it has been at work in you. You may not consciously realize it, but the word of God has been at work. It's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. How is it that you and I were born again? Through the living Word of God, through the active Word of God that that God used to speak into our souls and to transform our hearts by the power of the Spirit. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So, so the word of God acts on, on us. It is living. It is active. In fact, that word for active means energetic. It is powerful, right? It, 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 it hits us and changes us as we interact with it. And this verse says specifically the way, one of the ways in which it is living and active and at work within us is that it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. So here the author is grasping an analogy, right? How, how can I describe just how precise the surgery of the word is on the human heart? And he says it is so sharp, it is so capable, it's sharper than any two-edged sword you can imagine. It can slice to the smallest of differences. Look, the point of verse 12, by the way, is not to create some theological system about the difference between soul and spirit. That's not the point. The point is the word of God is so sharp. It is so precise that it can divide between that which man cannot even imagine dividing. That's the point. And ultimately what it does, you see there at the end of verse 12, it, excuse me, ultimately what it does It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Now, why is that such a big deal? That's a big deal because I think if any of us in this room are being honest, we often don't even know our own intentions. Right? We, we, are, we are deceitful even about our own intentions. Right? So, for example, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look, that's, that's not a flattering statement about the human heart, right? It's deceptive above all things. I mean, we are, we are really good. We are masters, humanity is, at lying to ourselves about our own motivations. Right? More often than any of us would really want to admit, we'll decide something because of envy or greed or materialism. And that, that's really the motivation, but we're so deceived we can't even see it. And we pile righteous justifications on top of it. We do it all the time. I'm not pointing fingers. Like, I mean, I do that too. We, we all do this kind of thing, right? We're motivated by some sinful desire within us. And then we find justification to pursue it that sounds good. And sometimes we don't even know that it's happening. And verse 12 says, the word of God is able to help us see it. If we'll engage with God's word, if we'll read it and pursue his truth, it will help divide those thoughts and intentions apart. It will reveal the sinful motivations that fester within our heart, that are motivated. Reasons sounded good, but this was really at the root of it, Jonathan. You, you've got to put this to death in your life. You see it? It peels back the layers. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It exposes our wickedness and the veneer of justification that we give to our actions. And in the end, when that happens, we're left to face this sin that resides within us. And the question is, what do we do in that moment? What do we do with that sin that's revealed to us that we didn't really know was there, but the Word of God revealed it to us, right? It, it discerned the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And here we are laid bare before the Word of God. And it's why we do this prayer of confession every week, because we want to remind you that's what you do, right? You come before Christ with your sin, and you come to Him, and you confess it, and you find forgiveness in the finished work of Christ on the cross through His life, through His death, we must strive together. Because if we're pursuing his word, this is what the word's going to do to us. It's going it's to tear apart the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And we're all going to be sitting here going, man, I'm really sinful. I need some help. And so we got to run to Jesus together. We got to pursue him together. Because when we engage with his word as we ought to be, we're going to have some hard things we're going to have to deal with. And we can't be indifferent to those things. We can't be lazy about those things. We have to strive toward Jesus while facing up to those things. And so we strive. The reason we have to strive is because the Word of God lays our hearts bare and shows the deep sinfulness that lives within us. Listen, that also means, by the way, that when you read God's Word on a daily basis, when you have your quiet time, when you hear the preaching of God's Word each Sunday morning, 
it means that, that you're not always going to leave here feeling uplifted and encouraged. Right? You're not always going to get up from your quiet promise to you in this church. Because that's not what the Word of God always does. You, you may leave here on a Sunday morning overwhelmingly convicted and discouraged about your walk with Christ. And sin patterns that you're struggling with in your life. But now listen, ultimately, ultimately, that's really good, right? That's really good news for you, right? To leave here sometimes convicted and discouraged about sin patterns in your life. Because what that means is the word is doing surgery on your heart. It's exposing the thoughts and intentions so that you can take them to Jesus. It's good news because when we're in that place, Jesus is ready to pounce with love and gentleness and forgiveness and long-suffering and mercy. Right? We've read about that and as we read through Gentle and Lowly in our life groups. The Word of God do its work. We have to let it bring the, that conviction. We have to let it do that surgery on our heart to, to pull apart the thoughts and intentions so that we can see our sin laid out before us. Now, Someone may say cynically, <clears throat> well, man, if that's what engaging with, it, sorry, excuse me, I'm going to get some water. <clears throat> Someone may cynically say, well, man, if that's what God's word does to me, then I'm just going to put it on the shelf and I'm not going to come to church because I don't want to deal with it. And that's why this fourth reason that we have to strive to enter God's rest is so important. Number four, we must strive to enter that rest, God's rest, because God sees all. So even if you want to avoid the word of God, verse 13 says to us, he still knows, he still sees, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's why it's so important. So earlier we read Jeremiah 17, 9 that says our hearts are deceitful. But then listen to what Jeremiah 17, verse 10 says right after verse 9. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give, every, to, give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I, the Lord, search the heart. He sees us. And he searches us. We cannot hide our motives and intentions from the Lord, even if we at times can deceive ourselves. We cannot deceive him. That's what verse 13 says to us. No creature, no man, no woman is hidden from his sight. We are all laid bare before him. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He sees the evil motivations that we try to push down and pretend like they don't exist. Psalm 139 goes into this in great detail. I'll just read the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, I cannot attain it. Look, verse 13 is both a terrifying reality and a glorious truth all at the same time. All right, it's, it's terrifying because it reminds that there, there is no hiding place from the judgment of God. We are living, all-knowing, all-seeing God that we must deal, to whom we must give an account. And he knows the hidden darkness of our hearts. All right, just, just think about Think about this for a moment. What if every single person in this room, including myself, had a website, yourname.com, jonathanbrooks.com, and every moment of every day, it just typed out what's going through your head. And anybody could visit it anytime they wanted to. Every thought every motive right there on a page for the world to see. That's terrifying, <laughs> right? We'd all go hide in a cave somewhere, right? Let's be honest. God sees it. He knows it. Before you even speak the words, he knows they're coming. That's what verse 13 means when it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You cannot pretend he doesn't know. He knows. And at one level, that is a terrifying reality. But let me say to you this morning, it is also a glorious truth. Because even though he knows the whole of it, he still sent Jesus. Jesus still came. He took on flesh. He came and he dwelt among us. And he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He fought against sin for your sake and for my sake. He lived a perfect righteous life so that that website full of garbage that goes through your mind every single day and through my mind every single day would not be what we're held accountable for in the last day. But instead we'll be judged by the righteous perfect life of Jesus Christ. And even though that website is full of treacherous, awful, rebellious acts of the will, for which you and I deserve wrath and condemnation forever. Jesus bore it all on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom so that you and I would not have to face it. And as we say almost every week, he victoriously rose from the grave. And even though 
Even though he sees it all and he knows it all, he still, when we place our faith in Jesus, promises us that we too one day will join him in his glorious resurrection and we're going to have glorified bodies. These these incredible realities that we're going to have for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever full of unspeakable joy and never fading satisfaction in the glories of Jesus Christ. And yet he knows every dark, disgusting thought that goes through your mind. So it's terrifying. But it is. But it points us to a glorious, long-suffering, patient, merciful Savior. That's why. That's why we've got to strive to enter that rest. Because the consequences of not entering the rest is facing up to all that God sees on our own. That's the terrifying position to be in in the last day. But if we are pursuing Christ together, if we're pursuing him together to enter into the rest he promises us, if we are enduring to the end with our faith, if we are pursuing him together as God's people, then we will find forgiveness and mercy and hope and righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ. So I say to you again, the reason we have to strive to enter that rest is because it's worth it. It's worth it. We've got to do it. And look, I want to make clear because I just feel like I just want to make this super clear because I don't want to be misunderstood this morning. I am not saying that you strive to earn that rest. I'm saying that because of what Christ has already done, fully and completely finished, completed on the cross, because he has done it all already, and he sent his spirit to dwell within us, therefore, because that reality exists, we need to run, empowered by the spirit, striving together to enter into the rest that he has promised to us. Our labors are worth it. So we have to strive because it's worth it. We must strive because we need to love one another enough to run after Jesus for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that, so that none of us in this room, so that no one falls away because of the same sort of disobedience of unbelief that Israel faced. And we've got to strive and run together because, look, the word of God, if we're going to be faithful and preach God's word, it's going to, it's going to lay our sins bare before us. And we need each other, right? We've got to run together. We need each other to fight against sin, to hold each other accountable, to encourage one another and to exhort one another daily so that we are not, so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we have to strive because God himself sees all and he knows all. And when we face that terrifying reality, there's only one place left to run, to the forgiving arms of Jesus Christ. So let's strive together to run toward Jesus where we will find forgiveness, comfort, peace, and yes, rest for our sin-stained souls. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and its power and how it works in our lives. 
And Father, so often it's not comfortable to hear what your word says to us. It's not comfortable to have our motivations and our sinful hearts laid bare. So Father, I pray that you would, that you would by the power of your spirit overwhelm us this morning with the mercy and grace and forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And I pray even as we sing these final songs, that you would fill our hearts with joy in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. That you would fill our hearts in joy that we are able to worship Jesus Christ. That you have opened our eyes to see the glorious reality of Jesus Christ. And so Father, I pray by your mercy to us this morning that you would allow us even right now, this very moment to worship you in spirit and in truth. And even as we sing this morning, that we would be mindful that part of singing is exhorting one another. We are not only singing to you, we are singing these truths to each other. And may we find encouragement and exhortation in the words of these songs this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.